This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions to provide you information that you can trust will be faithful to the dignity of the human person as understood by the Catholic Church. Today we're going to cover several intriguing topics. First, a couple of medical news articles. Then Dr. Mullally is going to give his patented preventive medicine tip of the day. Our regular feature, medical trivia that's not trivial for a question for you to ponder until the end of the show. We're going to be interviewing local cardiologist Dr. Dave Kaminskis about a life in medicine, his life. We'll have a book recommendation for you, and finally, we will answer some listener questions. So first, on to the news. Andrew, uh, as you know, I've been interested in uh, the crucifixion and the passion for a number of years. Yes. One of the talks that I've heard you give before is on the another physician at Calvary. Yes. And it was interesting that recently in the news, a, a Canadian medical journal published an article titled, Woman's Rare Condition Causes Her to Sweat Blood. Uh, I found this rather fascinating. They report on a 21-year-old Italian woman who for the last three years has been sweating blood from her face and palms. Does uh, that remind you of anything Catholics might be interested in? I feel like I read about that somewhere. might have been med school. I don't, I'm trying to remember. I'm oh, trying or to the Gospels. It. Or the Gospels. Yes, that's it. That's it. <laughs> yes, the Gospels in Gethsemane. Well, this 21-year-old woman was featured in Time Magazine, which is kind of interesting to me because there have been many cases of this reported. I don't know what was particularly interesting about this one, but finally it, it hit the widespread news. And in the article they say that many people think this doesn't exist because it's been tied mostly to spiritual or, or mystical phenomena. But as the case was with her and about 28 other cases that have been found uh, since the turn of the millennium, uh, many of these patients exude a fluid that contains sweat and blood cells but they don't know what causes it yet. And in her case, as well as others, they've done skin biopsies. And in every single case but one, they found normal skin. So how, how is that possible? You're, you're a dermatologist, right? So you get to biopsy the skin frequently. You, you get to look at a neuromicroscope. microscope. How, how could we only find normal cells if, if we have something so abnormal as this? That is a great question. Well, fortunately, there was one case about 10 years ago where they actually did the biopsy while the person was exuding the bloody fluid. Okay, and they yeah. found something a little different. And they didn't find what Dr. Pierre Barbet wrote in 1950 in a doctor at Calvary. He said that the blood vessels rupture and then mix into the sweat glands. But every day I'm looking under the microscope at the skin and there's just too many layers of things, of cells, between blood vessels and sweat glands for that to happen. So in this one biopsy, they showed that there's actually blood between the normal layers of the skin between the collagen fibers and the middle layer of skin called the dermis. And as they step section through the slide all the way from the biopsy, they found that the blood cells just go between the normal tissues and out the skin surface. There's no relationship to the sweat at all. And unfortunately, these, this Canadian article, actually they had three articles, they didn't even find that. They said every single one was normal or they found it mixed with sweat in the skin. And I've read all of those articles. It's not the case. But I thought the conclusion was interesting that this condition, which is is now being called hematohydrosis, which I had always called hematidrosis, but I guess the rare disease people have come up with an appropriate name for it of hematohydrosis, hematoblood. It's, it's uh, all Greek to me. It is all Greek to you because it is. Oh, Andrew, I love your humor. <laughs> so and in these patients, there's not always a single trigger for what causes it. In fact, some of these patients wake up just with blood running down their face in the middle of the night, and they don't know why. Others, it's related to some kind of emotional trauma. So do we have, along with this case series, do we have an idea about the religious backgrounds of these people? Are these people, could, could they have spiritual components to most of this or not, not necessarily? The ones that have been reported since uh, 2004 were the first ones reported in about 40 years in the medical literature. And they're all over the world, multiple religions or no religion. And uh, none of them are really associated with any mystical phenomena. Hmm. So it's a rare event, but it does happen. Just and when you thought you've seen it all. Just when we thought we've seen it all. You know, I haven't seen a case of this yet. Uh, I suspect you haven't either. Not, not this year. Well, and now to one other piece of medical news that might be a little more relevant to the physical life of our listeners. And this from the University of Sydney. They said that push-ups and sit-ups could add years to your life. See, that's, that's what they've always said, right? The, the more exercise you get, especially physical activity on a regular basis, that's going to prolong your life. 
But but who are they? <laughs> who are the they who said that, Andrew? I'm just, I hear my mom's voice in my head primarily. <laughs> but. We'll have her on someday so we can interview them. <laughs> uh, well, what they did in this study is had 80,000 adults examined by the University of Sydney in Australia. And they found out that people who did strength-based exercise had a 23% reduction in risk of premature death by any means and a 31% reduction in cancer-related death, although there was no change in cardiovascular health with it. But they said there was an increase in, in health and a decrease in death on top of if they were already doing aerobic exercise. So there is some added benefit we get with strength that we don't get with aerobic exercise. Have you ever heard that before? You know, I, I believe it. it. It goes along with something that we see even in, you know, the American society where, where many people, if not most people, lead a sedentary lifestyle. We, we talk about if you don't use it, you lose it. And we can see that from every age group, even from the, the elderly, where if they continue with exercise, whether it be strength training or aerobic activity, they really live longer and do better on a, on a practical level where they maintain their ability to get around and perform activities of daily living. So it's definitely something that we, I usually try and incorporate into my wellness exams, talking to people about it. But as, as you know, one, one of the things that we all struggle with, uh, at least most of my patients that I see, is time management and making time <laughs> for exercise. Yes, yes. It has to become a regular part of the day, not an add-on. And for those of us just joining us, this is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. This is Dr. Tom McGovern discussing medical news with Dr. Andrew Mullally. You know, one other thing this study pointed out is that it actually is in line with a recommendation. How about that? So last week exercise was good for you, and this week it is according to the World Health Organization. Their physical activity guidelines recommend 150 minutes of aerobic activity weekly for adults, plus two days of muscle strengthening activities. So it sounds like this would be a good thing for all of us adults to do. You know, and exercise has so much to do with general well-being, even beyond the length of life. I mean, we, we're heading into, you know, the winter here, the, the deepest part of the winter, and many people suffer from even emotional changes during the winter season. Any amount of exercise that you can do can help combat that. And so that's something that we definitely recommend. I, I usually tell folks a minimum a half an hour a day as the goal, but if you can do more than that, it's even better. Exactly. And so that works out to half an hour, five days a week. And for the strength training, you know, we often think gyms, weights, machines. The article's talking about body weight exercises. You can do one-legged squats, two-legged squats. You can do toe-ups. You can do push-ups. You can do, you know, fall on your back like a, a crab and do triceps push-ups on your back. So there are a lot of different body weight activities we can do that we don't have to do often, but that will help. So... Those are two bits of medical news. And now Dr. Malali has for us a preventive medicine tip of the day. Hello, everybody. And this is where I want to take the opportunity throughout the show to go through regular preventative medicine recommendations. There's a governmental organization called the United States Preventative Screening Task Force, abbreviated USPSTF, for those of you who want to Google that. It's an organization that goes through and determines what is the most effective preventative care uh, recommendations that can be made. And those are part of the recommendations that the Obamacare had uh, mandated be paid for by the insurance companies. And so going through those, I, I found a couple that are interesting. And one I'd like to address today is the recommendation um, for screening of hepatitis C. Uh, USPSTF recommends that hepatitis C screening is performed on all individuals born between 1945 and 1965. Why is that important? Yes, why is it? I've seen these billboards all over town. I was born in 1963. See, so you, you fit the bill there. Why? What, what did I do? Well, you, you are part of the famous baby boomers. Oh, you know it. So we, we really, the, the people who are targeted here are folks born between 1945 and 1965. And the reason is, is they account for over 80% of people with hepatitis C. 2.6% of the people in that age group actually are infected with hep C, and they wow. probably don't know it. So I've got the top three reasons why this is important to you. Number one, hep C is a liver infection that's usually contracted from blood products and bodily fluids. So we all know about the baby boomers, and you can probably attest to this, is that <laughs> there's so many people back in the day who were making really bad decisions yes. uh, with IV drug use and sexually transmitted diseases. Those are the primary ways of contracting this. And this is not to be confused with the other hepatitises, A through E. And one of the reasons that we screen for it is that it's a chronic infection. It usually doesn't go away on its own. 
Reason number two is that we do have a cure now. And so it's very important that we screen for this because we actually have a treatment. Up until maybe three or four years ago, this was a chronic condition that would lead to death ultimately, and there was nothing really you could do about it. So it was, there was less of incentive to look. I thought in the past ribavirin and interferon would greatly reduce symptoms. Wasn't that true? It would help with symptoms, but so many people don't even know they're infected until it's too late. Your okay. liver can really withstand a lot of damage before it starts showing symptoms. And so now we're trying to go out there and look for people who have never shown any symptoms yet and track them down so that we can treat them, provide a cure, and then also hopefully stop transmission for folks who still might be passing this on. So cure means no more virus in the body. For the vast majority of wow. people, okay. it, it will eliminate the viral positivity in your antibodies. Great. And so it'll provide a cure and then you won't end up having liver failure, which is a, a primary cause of death with hep C. So for those people who, especially if they have risk factors from those crazy 60s, or if they were just in that age range, your insurance will usually pay for it. And if you're found to have it, then we can get you treatment and provide a cure. So hep C in five minutes, that's all you need to know. Well, what was the third thing? Well, the third thing is that it's the prevalence of the baby boomers, actually, that even if you think that you don't have it and you're not at risk, we know that almost 3% of people in that age group have it. So even if you're not having symptoms, okay. you could still have it. You still need to get treated. So I would encourage anybody who's of that age group, talk to your doctor. For folks that don't doctor much, this is only new from the last three years, so you probably haven't heard of it before. What is the specific test to order? Because I know there are different hepatitis C antibody tests. Yes, there's different subsets of hepatitis C, but what you're going to want to order is the screening antibodies. Just the screening hepatitis yep. C antibody test. And then if we're positive, you do more testing from there. You probably don't know this, but back in the 1990s, I actually authored the first study looking at household transmission of hepatitis C when I worked in the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Disease. And it was a multi-center study, and we collected blood. Uh, I collected some of it. And we showed that even in a household where there is no direct body fluid swapping, you could even transmit it. See, that's, that's scary to think about because you know there's so many people out there who have this disease. They might not even know it. It's something that we should really track down. I, I agree. I'm going to go get tested. And to end this first segment of our show, I have a medical trivia question, but trivia is not always trivial, and medical trivia like this is not. And the question I want you to ponder that I will answer in the last segment of the show is, is it possible for a surgeon to operate on you without leaving a scar? It's a question I get all the time. So turning out for the first segment, this is Dr. Doctor coming to you from Redeemer Radio, Northeast Indiana's on-air family of faith. This is Dr. Doctor, and today we have as our guest Dr. David Kaminskis, well-known to Redeemer Radio listeners. Over the past several years, he's been producing short spots called Faith in Medicine. He's also the author of numerous articles in Today's Catholic in the column The Catholic Doctor is In. He has a, a way of telling stories that really endear him to people, and we thought it would be wonderful to introduce him to our audience more deeply. Welcome Dr. Dave. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. So you graduated from Ohio State University Med School? Yes, I did. And then where did you go from there for your uh, further training? I stayed right at Ohio State. And so you did your internal medicine training for three y years? Yes, In internship, residency, and then I was lucky enough to uh, get into the cardiology program as what's called a fellowship. And you were there for how many more years? Uh, well, I mean, I, I actually, so medical school and then, so we were looking at four plus three plus three. So, you know, 10 years at Ohio State. I understand it's the Ohio State University. I was going to correct you, but I, I thought you'd come <laughs> to your senses soon. As I have. So you've been practicing cardiology in Fort Wayne since? Since 1982. 1982. So a lot of life has gone by then. So how how did you get to be in Fort Wayne? Well, uh, uh, when I started looking for a job, and believe me, I had no clue how to look for a job. I mean, all I knew, knew is I wanted to be a doctor, and uh, it's really quite a bizarre story, but since I didn't know what I was doing, uh, <laughs> I actually sent letters to the three hospitals in Fort Wayne, to the CEOs. I kid you not. I didn't contact doctors. I actually contacted the hospitals. That shows you how naive I was, okay? 
And Lutheran and Park, you ignored me. And St. Joe, a gentleman, I still remember his name. His name was Ray Brighting. Uh, he was a vice president there. He said, come on down and we'll show you around. That, that was it. So I came down and, and had an interview with him. And he, he said, well, there's two small groups of cardiologists in town. And I don't think the one would hire you since you're from Ohio State. <laughs> um, it, it, was a, it was a group that was completely Indiana University. That's just the truth. And, and the other group had different doctors from different places. So he drove me across town to meet Dr. Robert Swint, who, ah. who was the one that interviewed me. And then he invited uh, my wife and I to come back a couple weeks later. And then they offered me a job. That's how it happened. So you've been practicing medicine for a long time. Has it lived up to kind of what you were thinking it was going to be when you went into it, or has it been something different than that? No, it, it's turned out to be a lot what I thought it would be. I have to tell you, though, that the first decade was much more difficult than I thought it would ever be. The, there weren't very many cardiologists back then. We were a group of three cardiologists, and it was pretty taxing that first decade. You know, now we have a much bigger group. But Is it because there was so much need for cardiologists at that time? Yeah. It was, you know, a great need for cardiologists. We were pretty much overwhelmed. It became very clear that we needed many more cardiologists. And night call was typically pretty awful. And there was three of us. And somebody goes on vacation, it's every other night's pretty much <sighs> up. You know, so... Yeah, it was, it was difficult, uh, but very rewarding, that's for sure. When you applied to medical school, what did you think a physician was, a physician did, and what fulfilled a physician? Yeah. Well, I have to tell you, you know, I, I was pretty naive in that, in that regard, too. But I, I was one of these guys that went through my medical school interviews and said uh, things like, well, I, I want to help people, you know. I mean, I, you know, and I can just imagine – you know what the interviewer thought, oh, geez, there's another guy who just wants to save the world, you know. But um, I, I had good intentions. I, I, I really did. And, you know, you get some flavor for watching doctors on TV. Uh, but, but I have to tell you, I was the first doctor in my family. I had no connection with doctors. I just was fascinated by it. You know, I went to Purdue before all this happened, and, and I was in mechanical engineering. And what happened is between my junior and senior year, out of the blue, a professor asked me to do some biomedical research with a veterinarian that was doing open-heart surgery on dogs. And so I stayed there the summer, and I got so fascinated by medicine that as I entered my senior year, I said, oh, my goodness, I made a mistake. I want to be a doctor. And thankfully, they were nice enough to waive some classes and let me get some basic biology and chemistry so I could qualify for applying. And, and then I, I was lucky enough to get into Ohio State. Now, one of the things that you're known for are these stories of patients. <laughs> you were a big hit at the MedCon conference we had uh, last fall in Fort Wayne. Did you always have this kind of outlook or was that always uh, something you looked forward to even from the beginning or is that something that's kind of grown as you've continued to practice? Well, I'll tell you where I think the epiphany was where my practice became so much fun and rewarding and that years ago in the 1990s, I took a couple mission trips to Guatemala and I went to Guatemala and we, we saw loads of patients. Uh, we evangelized as well. But when it was all said and done. I knew that all I had done was given a little love to the patients, give them some vitamins, and, you know, there was a few <laughs> heart problems I, I saw, and I could give them blood pressure medicines for a couple months because I had samples, but what did I really do, you know? But I, I really loved the, the way that we could see patients and you could just feel their appreciation. Well, I came back to the States and said, I can do this every day. I'm seeing all these people every day, and I'm telling you, it was like, Night and day, when I came back from a couple of those trips, I said, this is the way it's going to be fun. And uh, I just – I began to treat my patients differently. I began to see them more as people, uh, uh, to listen to their stories, to ask, mm. you know, Farmer John that comes in the, in the office, how, how's the crops looking this year? And, <laughs> and, and you know, and, and, and just, you know, interacting better. And so – 
for the past 20 years, it's been a blast, and it's it's that patient interaction that I crave. For those of you just turning into listening to some more of Dr. Dave's stories, this is Dr. Doctor coming to you from Redeemer Radio, Northeast Indiana's on-air family of faith. You know, Dave, I find myself that those kind of interactions with patients are much more fulfilling than I ever thought they would be. It sounds like you discovered that, too. One of our nurses recently wrote on one of our, our blackboards this quote that said that people won't always remember what you did, people won't always remember what you said, but people will always remember how you made them feel. And it sounds like you have a knack for helping people feel good. Well, I, I, I appreciate that. I try. You know, I, I can look back at plenty of failures through my career, but... In general, I believe going to the room and looking them in the eye and listening. You know, as some of the, the great doctors have said in the past, if you listen to your patient, they'll tell you what's wrong. <laughs> you know, you got to take a history. So you go in there and be quiet and listen. Well, and you mentioned looking the patient in the eye. You know, that's something that I'm very passionate about in family medicine, but there's so many challenges now with the computers you know, moving away not only from the paper charting, but the new regulations we have from the government insurance companies. How have you been able to hang on to that and, and keep that going even in modern medicine? Well, I have to tell you, as I look to my colleagues that I work with, uh, most of them have succumbed to being in front of a computer, okay? But I don't. God bless you. And <laughs> what I do is I do my homework before I walk in the room and I look at I look at the computer and the medical records and know what I need to know. I go in there and unless they tell me they had a test that I didn't know about, you know, I might look it up on the computer in the room, but in general, the computer never goes on in the room. And what I do is I look at the patient, I talk to the patient, I examine the patient, I tell them what the plan is. I, I commonly write it down for them actually, uh, exactly what the plan is. And then when I'm done, I leave and go to the computer. And then I have another six, seven, eight, nine minutes on the computer to put it all together. And so that's what I do now. I know that that's not the way most doctors are doing it, but I've done it for so long now that I, once electronic medical records came in, I just decided up front I was not gonna change. Well, and I wonder if that's maybe why you still have so much fun with it. I mean, one of the things we read about and talk about frequently yes. is so many medical professionals are getting burned out, doctors, nurses, physician assistants, and it's because of the, the demands of modern medicine, the number of patients you have to see, the things you have to do, and you really lose sight of that relationship with the patient. But you've been able to hang on to that by keeping the computer out of the room. I have more fun now, for sure, than I had 20, 30 years ago, no question about it. But electronic medical records has not been easy, uh, and although it brings us uh, some good things, it is really helping us destroy the patient-doctor relationship and the, the open discussions you have in the room. So is that one of the biggest changes in medicine that you've seen in your career, the electronic health record? Yeah, yeah, that's a big one, but I have to tell you that I think the biggest one, since you have to realize I've been, I've been a, a doctor since... Uh, since 1977 is technology. Oh my goodness, what has happened since I started practicing medicine in cardiology, for example? When there, there's a new procedure now that I'm, I'm sure both of you are familiar with, uh, but it's called a transiotic valve replacement. We call it a TAVR. When I first heard about this about 10 years ago, <clears throat> they were doing some experiments on animals. I said, there is no way <laughs> that we're ever gonna do this in humans, you know? <laughs> And here we are routinely putting in aortic valves with people with severe stenosis, which will kill them, and we do it through a little incision in the groin and don't open the chest anymore. I mean, it's amazing. You know, I remember, I think it might have been in the 80s or 90s, and New England Journal had this spoof cover. And on the cover, they were trying to predict what the cover stories would be in like 2050. <laughs> that was one of them. Oh, and they're wow. doing it now in 2000. Oh. You know, whenever they started, 15, 16, 17. Yeah, well, so, so when we started doing this, I said, well, we'll certainly never be able to do that with the mitral valve. Guess what? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, they're starting to replace mitral valves 
uh, you know, in a s- small percentage of people, only in certain institutions, where you know nobody in Fort Wayne's close to doing that yet. And remind our amazing. listeners, where is the mitral valve and where is the aortic valve? <laughs> okay. Well, the aortic valve lets blood out of the heart and it opens up so the left ventricle pumps blood through the aortic valve out to the body. So when it gets really narrowed, you have a lot of symptoms, chest pain, shortness of breath, even heart failure. And then the mitral valve is the valve that lets blood in from the lungs through the atrium to the ventricle uh, it's so that the heart can, can pump it out through the aorta. Thank you for that clarification. Well... This is the first half of our interview with Dr. Dave Kamiskas, cardiologist and a storyteller extraordinaire. And we are Dr. Doctor, a trustworthy medical information source for Catholics. This is Dr. Doctor and Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally are now continuing our interview of local cardiologist Dave Kaminskis. Dr. Dave, I've got a question. You know, one of the things that patients always want to know is they kind of want to get some insight into the practice of medicine. What's it like? What are, what are the types of things that are going on behind the scenes? So for our listeners, what do you think one of the biggest misconceptions patients have would, would that be? Well, uh... I think it might be that because you have an MD or DO behind your name, it guarantees excellence, and <laughs> most doctors are well-trained, but there's a wide variety of the way doctors practice, and, and I think you have to be careful and very willing to take care of your own health and to, be, and to manage your own health and to ask the right questions. So, so I, I, I worry a little bit about people that go to see the doctor and they pretty much say, well, whatever the doctor says. So there's informed consent, but then there's shared decision-making that I think is very important. And when I talk about a difficult or dangerous procedure, I, I want the patient to help me make the decision. You know, I mean, do, do you really want to do this? Here's the risk, but here's the benefits, and let's decide together what's the best choice. You know, when I was going through medical school not too long ago, they, they put a huge emphasis on that as a change from the way things used to be. I wonder, when you were going through training, was that the same emphasis, or was it more, you know, this is the best thing to do, you just tell them what to do and keep moving? Yeah, it, it certainly was. When, when I was an intern and resident, and we had our, you know, attending uh, academic doctors teaching us, boy, they'd walk in the room, and, you know, they, they would want to take over, and, and they didn't want, the, they didn't want the, uh, the patients to ask too many questions or to uh, be too well-informed. That was very honest, you know. And, and, and so because of education, the Internet, and, and everything, I, I think people are more ready to ask those difficult questions. But you're, you're right. It's, it's, it's much better now than it was when it comes to the interaction between doctor and patient. And, you know, I still have the older patients that say, well, doctor, whatever you tell me, I'm doing yeah, you know. That's kind of scary, isn't it? No pressure. Yeah, no kidding. And you know, and then they'll say, "Well, what would you do?" Or, or "What do you? What would you tell your mother to do?" And that's that's a good one. What would you tell your mother to do? You know, I mean. And so sometimes they put you on the spot, and you you may even change your thinking a little bit with that question. Okay, what would I tell my mother to do in this situation? I think those are great questions. They often ask, "What should I do?" And sometimes there are some equal choices, but when they phrase it, what would you do or what would you tell your mother? I, I love those questions. I got one of those today. It made it very easy to answer. Mm-hmm. We'd like to give some practical tips for our listeners. What would you tell our listeners that you wished patients knew about the healthcare system that they often don't know? Well, that might be in regard to testing. When you see your doctor, there's a pretty wide range of tests that are offered for a certain symptom. And I happen to be a doctor who probably does less tests than most doctors because I'd like patients to, to think about this. If a doctor orders a test, ask your doctor, so if I have this test, how is it going to change my health care? How is it going to change what you do? For example, I'll have patients that have a bad heart, congestive heart failure, and I know from a couple years ago their heart was 
this on a maybe what we call an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart. And I see it all the time with doctors. Well, let's just do an echo to, to see how your heart's doing. And my question to the doctor would be, was well, it going to change how you're treating me? I'm doing fine. I'm taking my medicines. Do you think that's going to change what you're going to do? And if the doctor says, well, yeah, I might do this if I find that, then okay, great. But there are some times that you need to question, do I really need all these tests? I, I think that goes back to one of the things that we always hear about in the news is the cost of health care, too. I think there's this perception that the more tests you, you order or have done to you, somehow the, the better off you're going to be. But one of the things that you're, you're alluding to really well is that sometimes you do tests and it either doesn't change things or maybe, maybe even there's a false positive where we find something that's not really relevant to, to their care, but now we've, we're going down a different rabbit hole where people could even get into more trouble for having had that test. I love that statement you just made. Go back to the 80s uh, and even into the 90s, it was routine after you had bypass surgery to come in every year and see your cardiologist and get a stress test. I mean, it was routine. So you had thousands of people getting stress tests, and then the study was done that showed you can't predict the future with a stress test. Heart attacks are a ruptured plaque, a clot, and you could pass a stress test and three days later get that ruptured you know, plaque and clot, and you cannot predict it. So we've gotten away from, you know, that, so that was proved, and now routine stress tests typically are not done, and, and insurance companies are smart enough now to say, no, we're not even going to pay for that. But, but that's an example of doing tests that weren't needed, and it took us a while to figure that out. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, Northeast Indiana Catholic Radio, discussing health matters because people matter. Dr. Dave, we doctors get a lot of questions from parents, from high school kids. Should their children or should they consider a career in medicine? How have you been answering that question lately and why? Yeah. Well, that's evolved <laughs> Depends on what day you ask. So it's a loaded question, <laughs> isn't it? It's really loaded. But we are losing some of our best and brightest uh, to other careers. And I really, I understand, I, I don't know the statistics, maybe you guys do, but, but back in the day when I was trying to get into medical school, it was a real fight. I mean, you have no idea how ecstatic I was when I got that letter from Ohio State saying I was in because... The way my interview went, I thought I was out. <laughs> I mean, that's another story. We could do a whole segment. On yeah, that. I've heard the story, and it's worth another segment. Yes, absolutely. I'm telling you. So, so anyway, um, uh, we have to encourage our young ones to consider this career, especially, you know, good young Christian people, and maybe even some good young Catholics, uh, to you know carry the torch for the right way to practice medicine, and maybe even the Catholic way. Um, and, and so I am all for encouraging our young ones. The problem with our young ones, though, is, is that uh, delayed gratification it seems to be a little more difficult now than years ago. And um, uh, most doctors don't really get rolling until they're about 30. And then they have debt so bad that, you know, it takes years to climb out of that. And, and, and so that's, I think, the hindrance of convincing our young people. But, um, but just being good examples, uh, you know, to, to, the, to the young ones that, that talk to us. But I, I would strongly encourage people. It's so rewarding. I mean, it's so rewarding. Um, you know, back when I was in engineering, I, I, that part of my epiphany was I, in engineering just, I, it just didn't feel right, you know. And, and what we do is we're so lucky to do what we do, you know. I, I think there is an opportunity, you know, with every patient every day you don't necessarily have to take those opportunities. I think there's probably a lot of doctors and nurses and folks who go about their business just like a regular job, but I think for somebody who's looking to take those opportunities, looking at it as corporal works of mercy, you know, there's a lot of opportunities on a daily basis to help people. Oh, yes. Yeah, well said. So five years ago, when we started a Catholic Medical Guild here, you signed up. Why? By the way, Dave is the treasurer of our local guild and does an admirable job of it. How well, are we doing this month? Still in the, the red or not too bad? Black. I think it was black. Black, black. okay. <laughs> so I'm thinking he's with blood. The blood's red. Yeah. The budget's black. So I got this phone call completely out of the blue. And if I, if I remember correctly, it was uh, Dr. Eustace Fernandez mm -hmm. that called me and, and said, hey, we're, we're getting a team of Catholic doctors together. You want to join? And I said... 
I'm going to have to think about this. <laughs> and it took me several weeks because, um, uh, you know, we're all looking for spending more time with our family. We're all looking for, you know, to not be overwhelmed. Um, but I thought about it. I prayed about it. And I was pretty darn sure that, that I was being asked to do this for a reason. And uh, it's, been, it's been wonderful because you actually get to meet colleagues that have the same hopes, dreams, and uh, uh, what, what's the word I want? But we're heading down the same path, you know? I mean, this is all about redemption. And uh, it's just so nice to, to know that there's other doctors that feel the same way that I do about my Catholic faith. I, I always think about, you know, being involved in the Catholic Medical Association, how it's changed my my life and my the new practice of medicine for me over the last few years. Have you seen a change in the way you practice or a change the way you look at your vocation after joining the CMA? Yeah. Um, my, my biggest challenge early on, at least what I thought was my biggest challenge, was becoming more competent in the Catholic faith to make uh, proper recommendations to my patients. And I really felt the first couple years that we were doing this together that I gained so much, you know, from listening to my colleagues. But, you know, I started reading more. I started actually trying to understand, you know, uh, uh, how to uh, how to help a person die well. You know, what decisions at at end of life? What is proper? What is not? When to give up? When to push on? And do it in a Catholic way. Um, and I would now, I, I wouldn't have five years ago, but I would now feel very comfortable with a priest calling me up and say, I need guidance for this patient. I would, I would embrace that because I, I feel confident. But I was a little scared when I first joined the Catholic Medical Association that, that, that maybe my Catholicism wasn't as deep as it should be, and therefore it has become deeper because of it. And so your involvement has fulfilled your life even more as a physician than it was before? Oh, I can't, I can't even tell you how much more. You know, and the day-to-day -day interactions with the patient um, become even more amazing than they were four or five years ago when I thought I was doing a pretty good job. And, and I, 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 just today, uh, and, and almost every day, to be honest with you, somebody comes into my office and said, I read your article in Today's Catholic. Good one. And the, uh, uh, an elderly lady, an 88-year-old lady, today, as I was walking out of the room, says, could you write more articles? <laughs> I mean, you know, and then and then every once in a while somebody says they heard me on Redeemer Radio as they drove drove over to see me or something. I go, man, you know, there are a lot of people that listen to this radio station. There are, and it's amazing. So, so it is uh, it is so heartwarming to know there's somebody out there listening and reading. You know, that's one of the things that you, you've kind of touched on is how it kind of fulfills the practice of medicine and taking care of patients. Recently, we got to hear a lecture by Dr. Mike Parker out of all, all, also Ohio, I believe, uh, the Ohio State, um, <laughs> about physician burnout yes. and how folks in medicine, the temptation is to get burnout and you, you lose that joy that's really essential to, to helping people. I think maybe this would be an opportunity for folks who are listening who have not heard about the Catholic Medical Association before, nurses, uh, nurse practitioners, physicians, anybody who helps take care of patients to, to look it up because I know it's done a lot for, for my life and for the ability to stay engaged in the practice of medicine. And you give a great testament to that as well. We're going to have to have you on again for some more of your stories, Dr. Dave. This has been just a joy uh, to have you on and uh, talk to you. So we say thank you. We say goodbye. And this is Dr. Doctor discussing health matters because people matter. This is Dr. Andrew Mullally along with Dr. Thomas McGovern, and we are here on the Dr. Doctor Radio Show, Northeast Indiana on Redeemer Radio. Now, Tom, we had a trivia question at the beginning of the show. Can, can we give the people the answer to that? Yes, we can even give them the question again, which is, is it possible for a doctor to do surgery on your body, particularly cutting through the skin without leaving a scar? And the short answer is no. Now, when people ask me that question, they hear that answer and they're disappointed. 
But what they're really thinking is, will it leave a disfiguring mark on me? Once you cut through the middle layer of skin, once you cut through the top layer of the epidermis into the dermis, it will form a scar that you will see under the microscope and even if you look close enough at the skin. The question they're really asking is, will it be noticeable? And that depends on the skill of the surgeon as well as your own body because some people have differences that they just don't heal well no matter who operates on them. And there are certain areas of the body that heal better than others. The face is like the most forgiving area for scars, whereas the legs below the knee are probably the most unforgiving areas of the body. But I hand out to all my patients I operate on five myths related to wound healing. All right. There's got to be a cream for that or something, isn't there? There's got to be a cream for myths. No. But <laughs> I do have it and one of these myths. So I thought it might be worth going through these because these might be practical for you to use. And uh, here's one myth with wounds, and, and that is people think that hydrogen peroxide is good for wounds. Now, it is great for killing bacteria, and if you just dirtied yourself up in some gravel or dirt and cut yourself, it's great one time to clean it up. The problem is it kills healing cells. So if you want to heal a wound, hydrogen peroxide is guaranteed to make it take longer. Although the best use of hydrogen peroxide, do you know what that is in the medical office? Man, that's a good question. You've got me there. I use it on a regular basis. Nothing gets blood out of clothing better oh, than hydrogen peroxide. Very nice. Yes. Yep, I see. <laughs> I love it. Yes, it is true. Second, some people think, oh, got to get that wound exposed to air. It's going to heal better. Everybody knows that. You got to get the, the scab to form and then it can heal, right? Oh, that scab is absolutely a sign that you are not taking care of your wound. Oh, nope. Man. Actually, air significantly slows down wound healing, no matter what mom, grandma, great grandma said for generations. If you want to expose it to air, you go ahead, but it's going to slow it down. I tell patients, think about it this way. If you're on an ice rink with ice skates, you're going to skate across there fast. But if you're in a pile of gravel with ice skates, you aren't going anywhere. And those ice skates are those new healing cells trying to cover over a wound. For, for those who don't know, uh, Dr. McGovern is from the UP in Michigan. <laughs> and that is a UPER analogy, <laughs> if I have ever heard one right That would there. be the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, God's country. Yes, area code 906, God's area code. <laughs> Myth number three. Topical antibiotics help wounds heal better. Well, it's a myth because it's not true. In fact, I give my patients four reasons not to use topical antibiotics on wounds. And in fact, the American Academy of Dermatology says that wounds should not be routinely treated with topical antibiotics. That the main problem is that antibiotics cause allergies over 20% of the time when you put them on an open wound. Secondly, the topical ones you can buy over the counter might kill half of bacteria. So it kills the easy to kill bacteria and leaves the nasty ones more able to proliferate. Third, no antibiotic has been shown to heal a wound as well as just plain petroleum Vaseline jelly. And finally, petroleum jelly is a far less expensive than any topical antibiotic. Are, are you going to get in trouble with putting petroleum jelly on almost anything, or is it a pretty safe thing to try even before they come and see a doctor? If you drowned your body physically in it, you might get in trouble. Other than that, I don't think you can hurt yourself with petroleum jelly. That might be a good take home. Try that, and then, you know, before even before you get to come and see one of us. I think that's a wonderful idea. Myth number four, over-the-counter scar creams really work. Well, this one has an asterisk to it because there is one that does, but vitamin E might make wounds even worse. Uh, there is a product made of onion extract that has been shown to be no better than petroleum jelly. Uh, but there is experimental evidence that silicone gel products do help. And I actually saw this in Time Magazine a few years back. They interviewed a plastic surgeon who agreed with that. And it's based on some studies so that if you put uh, the silicone gel pads or creams on wounds for up to 12 weeks after surgery, it will help. And this is even a new study in a, a journal of plastic surgery that showed that if you take paper tape that you can buy at the drugstore and put it across a wound all along it, it will help that scar line to look as good as the silicone gel products, and it costs a lot less. Why is that? That is another excellent question, Dr. Mullally, to which I do not have an excellent <laughs> answer. And myth number five, which directly answers the question for today's trivia, is that surgeons can operate on the skin without leaving a scar is a myth. But the truth is nobody can. 
There is one great exception to this with which you may be aware. Where can you do excisional surgery and leave absolutely no scar? Hmm. It's a very so, specialized type of surgeon. That sounds like a very interesting question. Would that be maybe on a mucosal membrane? It's a moist area, and that would be in utero. Oh, if you operate nice. on a baby in the womb, they don't leave scars. Oh. After we're born, we leave scars. You know, patients used to ask with my training at Yale, uh, they could have a plastic surgeon so they wouldn't have a scar, to which my <laughs> teacher, my mentor, would say, it's called plastic surgery, not magic surgery. Oh, yeah. So, so that is uh, a lengthy answer to today's trivia question of the day. This is Dr. Tom McGovern, Dr. Andrew Mullally, coming from the studios of Redeemer Radio, your on-air family of faith. We have a book to recommend to you. It was actually recommended by one of our local priests to me this summer, and that would be uh, Andrew's pastor. Father Dan. Father Dan Scheidt, very well read, recommended to me this book called The Finest Traditions of My Calling, written by another Dr. Andrew, Dr. Andrew Nussbaum, who is a psychiatrist at Denver General and actually ended up being a speaker at our Catholic Medical Association Educational Conference. He was a great speaker. He was a great speaker. I remember he's about five foot seven, bald and thin. And he said he always wanted to be a basketball player, but instead God gave him the body of a psychiatrist. <laughs> I like that. Uh, he tells great stories in his book, but the title, The Finest Traditions of My Calling, is based on a line from the Hippocratic Oath that physicians used to take. And he takes an incredibly refreshing view of what the renewal of medicine in our society requires. And he questions some of the bedrock questions we have about how we're trained as physicians, how we work as physicians, and how, quote, the system uh, works between physicians and patients. And so the book, The Finest Traditions of My Calling, can be purchased online. It's by Yale University Press. came out in 2016. It was one of those books which I put off reading, but the day I started reading it, I just could not put it down. So highly recommended by a good priest, Father Dan Scheidt, and by yours truly here. In fact, our guild of physicians and nurse practitioners and physician assistants, et cetera, are going to be reviewing this book monthly together. And, you know, I think, Tom, this is a great opportunity to explain, too, one of the goals of our show is to try and give some insight not only into the practice of medicine, hopefully giving some tips that people can take home with them, but also some, some of the behind-the-scenes thoughts. And I think this would be a really good bedrock foundational book for people to read to kind of see where the medical profession's been, where it should be going. So highly yes. recommended. I, I remember back in the 1980s, there was a book that purported to give that inside view of physician training called House of God. And there were some not so Christian attitudes in that book. It was pretty rough language. I think this one gives it from the point of view from someone who sees life through the Catholic lens and truly wants the best for his patients. And like Dr. Kaminskis, who we just interviewed, has a great ability to tell stories. I, I think it would be a, a great book. And for anybody who would like to join us at the book club, it is Tuesday nights. The second Tuesday starting... Uh, we started back in, in December. December of 2017. Uh, but you can uh, find us online, Fort Wayne CMA dot com to find out exactly where we're meeting. We started at Scotty's Brew House, and by the time you hear this, hopefully we will still be doing that. And now to finish the show, we want to go through email questions from our listeners. And Andrew, I'm going to pick one here and ask you. There's a couple good ones here, aren't there? Yeah. Do you have a favorite one here? You know, there's. I'll, I'll let you pick. Okay. Well, let's start at the top. Should Catholics only go to Catholic doctors? That's a great question. If only everybody could. Um, <laughs> I, I think I'm biased, right? So I'm, I'm a Catholic family doctor and proud of it. But I do think there's a critical difference. And when you're talking especially about things at the, the beginning and end of life, as well as times when people are in crisis, it helps to have somebody who understands and shares your values. It's not essential, but it does make it a lot easier. And one of the biggest things about the doctor-patient relationship is trust. 
when you're sharing the most foundational things, it's a lot easier to trust one another, trust the patient on behalf of the doctor, and for the, the patient to also trust the doctor's judgment as well. So I think it's ideal when that can happen, but uh, I don't think it has to be essential. I mean, there's many good secular doctors that are very skilled at their trade, but they don't necessarily have the same values that our listeners may have. I think it's crucial that your physician, at the very least, respects your Catholic worldview. If not, it is very difficult to establish a relationship of trust. Mm -hmm. Just like we see patients all day long who aren't Catholics, and we respect them and their human dignity and their beliefs. And there are occasionally times when I'll have to tell a, a patient, you know, I don't think I'm the best doctor for you for, for this condition. But they're few and far between. So, no, all of our doctors as Catholics don't need to be Catholics. Uh, many of mine are, but I've been to physicians who aren't Catholic, and they've given me very good care. Tom, I'm going to throw a question to you now, too. Yes. Here's here's another one from one of our listeners, and this is kind of a this is a tri tricky question here. Which is more important, our physical health or our spiritual health? It's a great question because God made us as this weird conglomeration of the two most opposite things in the universe. Matter and spirit. There's nowhere else in the universe these two things come together except in the human person. So they're both essential. They're both important. But yet I've had the um, question posed in this way, and I think it helps to answer. It seems a bit extreme, but would you prefer that your child was falsely convicted of murder and executed or truly was a murderer? and didn't repent. That is that is a, a very unfortunate question. But it, 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 it points, depends on the action, right? You want him to not be a murderer. Right. So it, we, it, it's, the, it's the will, which is part of the spirit, part of the soul that matters. So that's obviously more important. But spiritual health and physical health are often deeply intertwined, which makes a good topic for a future show. But for now, we're going to have to sign off. This has been Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally with Dr. Doctor, coming to you from Redeemer Radio, your on-air family of faith, where we discuss health matters because people matter.